Hello and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem podcast. Today we have a very special guest, my friend, my colleague, Sachin Shukla. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm extremely... Excited. I'm so glad that you were able to come because I have not had an interview in over a year and it's it's just really wonderful to be able to sit down and not be alone <laughs> talking to <laughs> the laptop. <laughs> so I'm super glad that you were able to come uh, today. We are, you can introduce, what are we talking about today? So... The end of the fall, Mackenzie's like, hey, we should we should have you on, on, on my podcast. And uh, so if you just give me a book that you'd like for us to talk about. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to throw you the densest book I can think of. So this is the classic of sociology and, competitive, and comparative welfare, The Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism by Joseph Sving Anderson. He is a... Actually, I think he's Danish or something like that. He's a Scandinavian sociologist, and this is the the seminal work in why welfare states, and I would argue by extension why capitalism across the world looks the way it does. We're in the nineteen ninety. Yeah, great introduction. Thank you. Um, so I thought we could start by just talking about the main argument of the book, which I pulled from the introduction. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge junkie for introductions, mm -hmm. and I really liked the way this one was written. Uh, I'm obviously sort of a literature uh, aficionado on the show, yeah. um, and there's a lot of introductions, especially of textbooks or big seminal works like this that I've read lately, that just really haven't hit the mark in terms of laying out the methodology and their argument in a way that I felt was structural, but this book did that. So mm -hmm. their argument from page two is the history of political class coalitions is the most decisive cause of welfare state variations. And so essentially they have this root analysis of welfare states and they break it down into three different types of models essentially that play yeah. out. You want to say more about the argument of the book? Yeah. Um, so, Esping Anderson basically breaks... So he's looking at, at the developed industrialized countries. I don't think he considers places like Japan, South Korea right. yet. But, um, they, I mean, they map onto, the, onto his, um, his typology pretty well. But he's looking at the United States, Canada... The European countries looking at the kind of welfare states that form, and I mean, what how he considers the concept of a welfare state itself is is interesting in its own right. But he identifies three types. He identifies there's a liberal model, which or, or I think it's also called the beverage model, um, that places an, that places an emphasis on free markets. Um, limited decommodification, so the welfare state is pretty small, and it doesn't really pronate society in any particular way other than towards markets themselves, but as I would argue based on his work that 
Canisophia kind of formation. So that's mm -hmm. countries like the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom. Then he has a conservative model, which applies to countries like Germany and Italy, yeah. and France, where there is quite a bit of decommodification, but it's structured in such a way that it reinforces existing hierarchies like, like marriage, the family, the institution of work, mm -hmm. uh, civil service, things like that. And then finally, there's the Social Democrats, um, made famous by Bernie Sanders, of course, places like Norway, Sweden, Denmark. I think those are the only three, really. Mm -hmm. um, those are definitely the poster boy three. The poster boy three, yeah. But not Finland, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, where there are high levels of decommodification, but it doesn't, but they, they, unlike the conservative countries, they don't try to pronate their populace in one direction or another uh, ideologically. They just kind of, uh, just kind of subsidize living and don't put any constraints on how that living should occur. Yeah, yeah, really good summary. And I think, so one question that became apparent as I was sort of looking at the different populaces that they hold in question mm -hmm. is what do we do with the question of relative size, especially of population, in these across these different countries, especially since the US, for example, is like 28 times Just the size of down. Germany, or it's four times the size population-wise of Germany. Um. It's funny because there's not, the only other countries that are that size are not developed. Not really, like, mm -hmm. Brazil is not that developed, China is starting to be kind of developed, mm -hmm. India is a mess. Um, but I don't think, so it's clear from his, his research that the United States is sort of fitting onto its own, mm -hmm. even though it is part of the liberal set of countries where you have the lowest levels of welfare spending. The difference between the United States and Canada, for instance, mm -hmm. is massive. Right, absolutely. And you see this come up again and again and again on the right. metric. There's something different about the United States. Mm -hmm. I do not think it's the size. Mm -hmm. I think it is the fact that the United States is the only large, developed, multiracial democracy in the world. Mm. Gotcha. Um, that's where I think that's where it really comes from. I think, you know, in the case of countries like the UK, Germany, France, they were all doing the same thing we were doing with slavery. Except when we got, they, you know, it's imperialism and slavery, they're really kind of the same, it's the same basket of, right. of yeah. oppressive actions. The difference is that when we got rid of our colonies, those people became Americans. Mm -hmm. And our project for the past, 200 years now has been to try and figure out how to make them into you know give them their full citizenship right not only legally but also socially socially economically right. whereas when that happened in the UK and France and Germany they just washed their hands of it and now we have what we have what we see in Africa I mean I just read a story about Nigeria where there, this, they, one of the lines that really got me is that kidnapping for ransom has become one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy. Mm. 
and being half Indian and half Sri Lankan myself, I've seen both of those countries. They're a mess. Mm -hmm. They're just a complete mess. Mm -hmm. um, so in a, in a way, I guess, like, the U.S. Is ex is, it looks unique compared to a lot of these other countries. Mm -hmm. Because our problems with imperialism are ones that we have internalized, mm -hmm. and ones that we are, if in some cases unwillingly, trying to deal with. We didn't just wash our hands of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there are that there are many theses as to why the United States is so different. Yeah. But that's the one I find the most convincing. That's really compelling. Another thing I really liked about the way this research was set up and the way the argument was set up is, as you were saying in our Patreon episode, plugging my Patreon now, <laughs> um, um, this is a social application to economic theory. And, and this happens in finance too. And that's something why, that one reason why I really love personal finance is because it takes the models mm -hmm. and it applies them to behavior. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a saying, like, personal finance is 20% head knowledge and 80% behavior. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what this book does, is it really brings sort of, like, the social side, the people, yes. to um, the models, which is, you know, that's and something that's so successful. So what he's saying, when he's saying that the history, what did he say, political class coalitions is the history of welfare states and mm -hmm. capitalism, what he means is philosophy. Mm -hmm. he's, that's what he means, like... Because basically the history of capitalism is shaped by our philosophy about what you know the world is and what humans should be doing. And I mean, in a way that's kind of obvious, but it's also, it's nice to hear someone make that direct link. I agree, yeah. And that's to an extent what, you know, programs like Freakonomics do. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think with as much depth and I don't think with as much, like, statistics that might yeah. be a really hard and fast conclusion yeah. <laughs> i love freakonomics yeah. but i do think that in in particular this study is really um well it might not be airtight with those kinds of questions of like relative size and like weird research <laughs> metrics that i was thinking of earlier um it did really well so in terms of yeah, I mean, I just really, I, I really, really what I'm talking about at this point is I love the introduction, <laughs> and yeah. I love the way that it, like, it parses everything so perfectly, and so essentially what they're doing is they are trying to reframe or rebuild these inadequate models of welfare states through this lens of comparative study with the three different states. So we were talking about this, like, more humanistic, social, socially applied view of this social welfare discussion in particular. And my question was, to what extent should this kind of approach be applied to all measures of policy or all measures of economics? You mean his approach? Yeah, the sort of the soci sociological or humanistic approach. Well, and to what extent are the models sufficient? Um, Well, it's tricky, right? Because he's not really he's his his work is not prescriptive; it's descriptive. Mm -hmm. Like he's describing why things are the way they are. Um, and you know, so that's 
like the, the, the humanistic approach, as you call it, it I mean, it's useful data. Um, as far as policy goes, to what extent are the models adequate? So it seems like policy would be a more prescriptive realm in that regard. Yeah. So there was this the story, uh, this is the story I was telling you before and I'll tell it again. So one of the things, and now that there's Romney and his child allowance is coming yeah. out, right? And everyone at AEI is all worried about how it's going to be a workplace incentive. Um, and this is something we've, we've heard of before, is that when you give welfare, it disincentivizes people to work on the margin. Right. The thing is that what you would need a human, a human on the ground sociological approach to realize is that low income workers do not get to control how much they're working on the margin. Right? I mean, often this is actually, it's actually a really big problem, scheduling, scheduling unpredictability. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of workers do not know more than a week or two in advance how much they're going to be working, and mm -hmm. they certainly do not control. So it's not like they could say, okay, well now that I have this, this Romney Bucks child allowance, I'm going to work five hours a week less this week. They can't do that. The, the decision is whether or not they have a job at all. Mm -hmm. Once you account for that, this work disincentive baked into the welfare, well, according to the model, it's totally correct. It looks a lot less scary. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because the model is just not set up right. Like, the conclusion it's getting from its assumptions is fine, mm -hmm. but it's just not really set up correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm totally, at this point, um, my mom has been trying to indoctrinate me into Dave Ramsey for um, 13 years. Dave Ramsey? Yeah, he is a finance guru. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if guru is the right word. He's like America's <laughs> finance guy. He's he's the one sounding like the alarm on debt. And, and that, the private debt? Uh, all debt. The national debt. National, private, yeah. everything. Like he's basically, his story is that he became a millionaire in his 20s, lost everything because he had too much debt, too mm -hmm. much risk. The bank decided to close and call all of his like mortgage investments and then he lost everything and so uh and then he became a millionaire again like in his 40s because i know right yeah he yeah he he committed or committed bankruptcy <laughs> he declared bankruptcy uh and literally worked his way up from nothing mm -hmm. and he did it complete in complete opposition to debt the second time so he's like very like he doesn't even want you to have credit cards or a car note or anything. Oh, okay. And one thing that he says consistently on his show is, you know, if you are working to get, excuse me, if you're working to get your emergency fund, get out of debt, you are doing what's called gazelle intensity. And he often says get another job or work more hours or, you know, deliver pizzas is his like catchphrase. Yeah. Um, so what, how does incentive and how does a second job play into what you're talking about with Romney Bucks and this whole issue? Incentives like a second job. Um, so I think a related issue, and this is again, this is another thing that the models kind of don't get, mm -hmm. is that the Romney Bucks, in a way they are discouraging 
wage paid labor, but what they are subsidizing is unpaid is the unpaid labor that you do at the home in terms of taking care of the child. Right. Right. So. And that has value, doesn't it? Yeah. And this is one of the things. This is and this is where, going back to Espen Anderson's typology. Conservatives in the United States have been what he is calling liberals. Yes, exactly. Neoliberals. Yes, yes. Really. Where yeah, they, they are, work on the Keynesian model of the broad scope, you know, not like exactly right. Um, and what part of the Trump revolution is that they are these people are starting to figure out that that's not the whole story. And that's part that's part of where this where we're realizing that wait a minute. Looking after a child is labor. It is socially important labor. Mm-hmm. Even if it is not rewarded by the market. Right. Um, and so this so in a way the the Romney even though it's designed because it's universal, mm-hmm. it's designed more like a social democratic benefit, you are getting, it is also in a way very conservative because it's pronating to society towards this pro-natalist mm-hmm. regime. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing so, it's disrupting this free market ideal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, you know, maybe you're not getting that second job or delivering pizzas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because of the way that childcare is working right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up with a single parent, and my mother I remember distinctly spending just exorbitant amounts of money. You know, obviously, as a kid, I knew it was a lot. Like, I knew yeah. it was a big sacrifice. I just didn't know how much until I got mm-hmm. older. Um, on childcare, and I know that in a lot of families, it is that question of, do does one parent get a second job like for example if there's a full-time mother working does the father get a job or does he stay home Mm -hmm. um and oftentimes the trade-off for that staying home is better because you're only making for example 10 grand more than you would earn at that second job um so yeah it's just it's a really stratified kind of system where um the trade-offs get worse and worse (laughs) in favor of the second job the more kids you have and the more um i don't know and i think it depends on your values too yeah and this is where again the idea of political class coalitions or philosophy and values determine where each country is going exactly Yeah. yeah yeah i thought um this idea of Wealth, the wealth, the welfare state is a stratification system in its own right. It was page four, um, was interesting and very self-aware <laughs> for a writer. Uh, in in terms of like the actual writing, is you're looking at this broad topic and you're looking at um, the the ramifications of it, but mm-hmm. you're also looking at the topic itself and sort of the contribution of this category within itself to. The, the countries in question. So I thought that was a really interesting twist on things. Um, and I have a related question, which is to this stratification type, mm-hmm. typification, um, which is do we reposition ourselves or are we positioned by the welfare state? 
I would lean decidedly, well, so I'd say it depends on which welfare regime you're living. Okay. I'd say in a sense. country like the United States or in a country like Germany, the welfare state positions you. Mm. In Germany, it's because big government is stepping in and saying by the time you're in fourth grade, either you're going to go on a university right. track or you're not going to go on a university track. Yeah. Or it's saying, we're going to reward you if you get married or if you you know, work a civil, or in Italy, we're going to reward you with pensions if you work a civil service job. In right. the US, what happens is, and this is, this is my big, this is like my big hobby horse, is that my big thing is equality of opportunity. Like, mm -hmm. I don't care, I don't care where you end up, as long as you had a fair shot of getting anywhere from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, that is flatly not true. Mm -hmm. In part because of what, what the phenomenon he describes in liberal welfare states is that there's this two-tiered welfare state. There's a public welfare state that is residual, and it is means-tested, and it's basically just made to get people to make do with whatever the, the plus whatever they can get from the market. And then in the middle and upper classes, you have a private welfare state, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because getting health insurance for your employer, that's welfare, really. It's just privately funded. Mm -hmm. And the same way, you know, going to college, um, income things like that, that's, that's a different way of getting welfare, you're just buying it with your labor. Mm -hmm. um, so you, and, and the fact that people aren't really starting out from, you have people starting out from two very different points, in a way that seems to me that's, that's more restrictive, mm -hmm. where the welfare state is very much positioning you, you're, you start here, you're stuck here. In a social democratic welfare state, I'd argue you are positioning yourself. Mm. Um, because everyone pretty much ha has very similar resources when they start out, and that gives you the freedom to decide where you're going to go. Um, so I, I would actually, like, this is, you're going you're gonna to cringe, but I actually think the American dream is more alive in Denmark than it is in the United States. Um, I know that this is a big point of disagreement between yeah. us, um, because I do think that the American dream is very much alive, thank you. Um, and I think, you know, part of it is experience, and part of it is worldview, uh, in the sense of both of my parents, uh, my dad is an immigrant from South Korea, and my mom grew up very, very poor on mm -hmm. the poverty line, uh, single parent household most of the time. So, the fact that both of them were able to elevate themselves uh, is what I'd argue to become comfortably middle class mm -hmm. within, uh, I think, in spite of a lot of different events and things that have happened to them, um, is a signification of what the American dream has to offer. And, you know, you could argue, okay, my dad is South Korean, he's sort of this model minority figure. Um, that therefore he's socially elevated mm -hmm. in a way that others are not. Um, which, you know, we can get into dotting our I's and crossing our T's later, but um, in terms of this question of like how much power do we have to change our own page, like what's written on our own page, I really think that um, 
for most people, maybe not for all people yet. Mm -hmm. We're getting there, hopefully. <laughs> the government works slow. Um, but I really do think for most people, we do have the power to change our own page and our own story. I mean, see, this is something I think about a lot, right? Because a lot of rich kids, right? Like the ones who go to Northwestern, they're not lazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them are. But, <laughs> but a laziness of, isn't determined by class. Often. Well, see, that's the thing. Many, most of them aren't lazy. They're very hardworking. They, as far as their ability, they're, what they're doing, they're doing something right. But I'd argue that is determined by class. It's, I'd argue it's determined by the presence of model figures in their households, in their communities, mm. in their schools, right? And if you were to take them and some random kid from, I don't know, Woodlawn, and swap them at birth, right? Hmm. Would you see the same result? Would you see the rich kid who's at Northwestern and working hard, working hard in Woodlawn? I don't think you would. I think I sh there are certainly there are differences in there between individual people. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not going to try to argue that. Right. Of course. Yeah. But I think that the way that the American welfare state is set up right now, it causes environmental factors because again, it's residual. Mm -hmm. In it doesn't try to get rid of environmental inequities by design. Mm -hmm. Its design is to just sort of it's its design is to just sort of fill in some of the gaps. Mm -hmm. It doesn't level. It's not supposed to level the playing field, and because of that, there's these environmental inequalities drown out any individual differences that you might see in the people themselves. And mm -hmm. that's what the social democrats do, is they get rid of these, and they level the, the playing field. Now let's see who's the, actually the harder worker. Yeah, I have a couple of comments about that. One is, the interestingly, I think, you know, when I first started at Northwestern, you never, you can get a sense of what people's backgrounds are like, especially mm -hmm. in the dorms, right? What people come in with, what, you know, people yeah. are looking like moving in and stuff. But... Um, I, it wasn't until I started working, um, that I really started to understand, like, what it's like to come from a less, uh, advantageous background at mm -hmm. Northwestern, and at these kinds of institutions or hubs, um, for higher learning, for whatever. Um, and I, I would argue that in, across all classes of society there are models of hard work there are models of these kinds of traits that we're seeing in um like for example the rich kids that you're typifying earlier um so i really don't see that as a measure of class well there are so models is one thing mm -hmm. right yeah there are also institutional and cultural factors at play mm -hmm. that create incentives for that in upper class backgrounds that might not be there otherwise, right? Like, so this is another book that I hope you'll get the chance to talk about, mm -hmm. is The Meritocracy Trap. Oh yeah, that was one of yeah. my uh, choices. <laughs> I got that list. <laughs> so, 
And the argument is that we, we had, and this is, we have capitalism to thank for this, by the yes, way. Yes. We started out with an aristocracy where you had the, you know, the landed elite, they were just kind of chilling out, eating bonbons, managing their whatever. And now when capitalism show up, they suddenly, they have to fight for it. Mm-hmm. And what merita- the way that the that elite classes in the United States work is that they encourage their kids to fight for it like hell. Mm-hmm. They do it with competitive, there are competitive admission preschools, for yeah, God's yeah, sake. Yeah. They, they do it with test prep. They do it with all these extracurriculars. Like, I was reading this article about, like, you know, there's competitive squash that determines whether or not you get into an Ivy League school. It's very South Korea, the way that a lot of the social models work there. Right. Um, and that is how success is measured in these communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, and I mean, in communities that are depressed, success is measured just by, like, can I get through the day, mm-hmm. right? And there might be different values in other communities, like, you know, just forget going to a fancy college. Am I a good, am I a good brother? Am I a good right. friend? Am yeah. I a good community member? Totally, yeah. Right? Um, so... But, I mean, regardless of what we think of these various value systems, the f- there is, I think there is an elite phenomenon going on that both is pushing kids to operate and believe this one, this, in this value system, and facilitates their doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think the institutionalization is a good point. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of people, by the way, in elite classes. Right. That maybe they weren't meant to, meant to, you know, do this ridiculous competition and go to Harvard mm-hmm. and McKinsey. Maybe they just, you know, they just want to go to a small town, settle State there, school, be, yeah. be a good husband, be a good, be a good wife. Exactly. That you know, that they, they should be doing that. Exactly. I'll bring up another quick disagreement with what uh, you were saying earlier, which is that so everyone has a way. Uh, they start on a level playing field in in these social democratic democratic socialist, you know, places. But I'd argue that means that there's no place to go. There's no room for growth. Well, that depends on what your view of humanity is. Okay. Right? Like, well, I'm actually, let me flush out that question. What do you mean there's no place to go? Um, Well, in terms of especially economic growth, if you're thinking of, so in America, let's just say, you know, you get the second job, you're working like a bunch, you pay off your debts, you start essentially building wealth, which is a long-term process and phenomenon, and you make those decisions uh, with the economic power we have in the States, especially the large percentage of income um, compared to a lot of the rest of the world um, that we get to take home at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, we use that capital to our advantage personally because of these decisions. Um, I would argue that, and that's, that's sort of a place to go in terms of your personal economic or financial growth. I'd argue that that isn't as much of a case. You can't really change your family tree in that way in a country like Sweden. I suppose that's true. I suppose, again, the different classes have different goals. Yeah. Like, I'll stress again that I'm not going to say that I don't care about equality of outcomes. Mm-hmm. 
I care about it insofar as it generates equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But that's all I care about, mm-hmm. right? Like, I want to make sure that kids start out in the same place when they're born so that I can, they can do whatever they want as adults. And the, the, the measurement of that by, by a wealth mm-hmm. is revealing in a way. Yeah. I don't know what the Scandinavians are thinking. What I'm thinking is that being a human being is a rare gift to experience this ridiculous playground that we have that is planet Earth. And there are so many ways to do it. You could be a, have a podcast, or you could <laughs> be a musician, or you could just walk around on the sidewalk, or you can like, I don't know, go backpacking somewhere, or you can be a financial analyst. What I think the ideal society looks like is that where when you are born, you have all those choices available to you. Mm-hmm. Now that means that we're not concentrating all of our resources into building wealth or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But I think that the overall list of options that's available is broader. Now, the conservative argument against that, I consider that a very liberal argument. Yes, yes, yes. The conservative argument against that is that, like, well, yeah, it's nice to have all those choices, but experience has shown that people like a certain view of those choices, and we mm-hmm. should pronate mm-hmm. society in those directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but where they disagree with the neoliberals is that whatever those directions are, there's a good chance it's not building wealth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beautiful thing about the ways in which we disagree, is that... Um, we have the same ideal. We have the same endpoint in mind. We just disagree on how to get there and what the systems are like getting there. So I, as you said earlier, you don't particularly pay attention to the outcomes insofar as they, you know, affect these starting points. Whereas I am a very outcome-driven person. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yes. And, and I guess. I think people often accuse like lefties, I guess I'd be considered a lefty, although I don't, <laughs> I don't consider myself that. but people often accuse us of not of being lazy and not valuing work, and that's like the big distinction between mm-hmm. the right and the left. The way I think of my philosophy is that I'm like, I'm all about that. Mm-hmm. I just want to, I want to see work rewarded. And here's, the, I think another big difference is that it, it, it's a difference in where we are. I think you would argue that where we are right now, work will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. I think it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to to distinguish our different viewpoints on this. Um, So thank you so much for bringing in this book. I thought the ideas were so fascinating just to toy around with and to read. Especially I liked reading your little comments that oh, you yeah, have in your my, book. Yeah. <laughs> your handwriting is gorgeous. Oh, thanks. Um, so yeah, super poignantly done. Thank you so much Thank um, you. for coming. Thank you.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.